there, and I, it's good to see you. Before we get into this story of um, the prodigal son, let me remind you that this afternoon at two o'clock, um, here in this sanctuary, we're going to celebrate and mourn together as a community. This is a community memorial service for those who passed away in the last year and a half or so, whether it was from COVID or any other cause. There were just so many people who didn't, so many families who didn't have the opportunity to hold a, a funeral or memorial service and had to settle for a graveside. So we're going to do that at two o'clock in here. And maybe even if you didn't lose anyone, maybe you would come to mourn with those who mourn and to weep with those who weep. We, uh, this summer, have been talking about the stories, the parables, and the sayings of Jesus. We're down to the last three weeks, and we're going to take three weeks to cover this one story, probably the most widely known and loved stories of, of Jesus, maybe in all the Bible, the story of the prodigal son. It's actually the story of, of three people. It's the story of a prodigal, which means wasteful, reckless son. It's the story of a, of a rather uh, pious and resentful older brother. It's the story of a father, a brokenhearted but forgiving father. A few years ago, a friend of mine named Michael stood in this place. Some of you remember he took his shoes off before he preached because he says this is holy ground. He said that morning that he's been all three characters in the story of the prodigal son. He's been the prodigal. He was born to a mother who was trying to mask her pain with drugs. And so he grew up with a, in a dysfunctional family, he found himself on the streets and in jail a number of times. Uh, he is a recovering alcoholic. But Michael had a tremendous experience of redemption and, and turnaround. And he, uh, he, he's, a, he's a marvelous creative minister, pastor in Florida. He said, I've been the prodigal son. He's been the elder brother. Just a couple of weeks before he preached here, his, older, his younger brother died from an addiction. Michael admitted, he thought, I got over mine, I, I made it, why couldn't you? I turned my life around, why can't you? He was, he's been the resentful older brother. And he's been the father. He had a child who strayed, who wandered, who became prodigal, who was wasteful, who made unhealthy and really bad decisions and Michael, the father, had to wait until finally his child came home. He said, I've been, I've been the father. Maybe you have been more than one of the characters in this story. Maybe you've been a prodigal son or daughter. Maybe you've been a father of a prodigal. Maybe you've been resentful of, of maybe other people experiencing, receiving grace and second chances. That's what we'll talk about next week. The reckless young man, of course, decided that a, a vast estate and a place in the family business and the love of his father was not enough. He wanted a better life. So he made a plan for that better life and he decided he had to figure out a way to fund that better life. And so he went to his father and asked for his inheritance. Now, I want the money and I want it now, he said. Now, before I continue with the story of the prodigal son, let me tell you a personal story. A few weeks ago, I was in my office where I have my library and I love my books. And I was, I was looking up something and I backed up and I kind of admired 
uh, all those great books. I have, at least I think they're great books. I, I love my library. And I thought of our son, Landon. He's a pastor in Beaufort, South Carolina. And I thought one day when I die, Landon is going to inherit all these books. And frankly, that was a, it was a good feeling, not about dying, but the idea of, of my son one day getting all these books was a good feeling. I thought when I die, uh, Landon's going to get all these books. So I, I texted him and I said, uh, Landon, one day you're going to inherit a great library. And he responded, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> now remember, I said to myself, when I die, he gets all these books. And he says, I'm looking forward to it. So I texted, that's hurtful. Why? He said, I said, because I've got to die for you to get them. He said, oh, I, I thought you just had to retire. That made me feel a little bit, a little bit better. But that's exactly what happened in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son said, Dad, I'd just soon you be dead. In fact, if I want the money now. That never happened. The inheritance came after the death of the father. There would, the father would die. There would be a period of mourning. And then after the mourning, they would talk about the inheritance. But this reckless, selfish young man said, I want the money and I want it now. By the way, that inheritance would not have been in the form of stocks. It would not have been in the form of a big check. It would have been in the form of land. So in order for this young man to get his money, the, farm, the, the father would have to sign away a portion of his land, maybe land that had been passed down from generation to generation. So for the young man to get his money, he would have, had, he would have to sell that portion of the land so that every morning the father would look over at that portion of his property, his estate, that had been handed down probably from generation to generation and he would see strangers living and working that living on and working that land and he would remember every day, he would remember the rebellion of his son. The father did not have to sign that paper. He didn't have to sign away his land and part of his heart, but he must have figured that any son who would prefer money over his father's life already had left emotionally, if not physically. And so he signed away part of his land and part of his heart. And the young man went to a faraway place. At first, people loved this fun-loving man from a faraway place. He had money to burn and he had a penchant for the nightlife. But his money ran out about the time of a famine and, and his friends, friends disappeared when he could no longer fund their entertainment. And, and soon self-respect uh, took a back seat to survival and, and he checked what dignity he had left at the door of the only place he could get a job and that was watching pigs. And things got so bad that there came a time when he would have wanted just even to eat what the pigs ate. And so at a, on a day, a dark day, the, after the kinds of experiences we can only imagine, the Bible says he came to his senses. That's how most translations have it. The King James Version, with which some of us grew up, the King James Version says he came to himself. What does it mean that he came to himself? First, it means he, under, he understood the gravity of his situation. Second, it means that he recognized who he was 
and where he belonged. First, he, he recognized the gravity of his situation. He told himself, you're in a mess. You're in a mess and it's your fault. He understood that he was in a pig pen. See, you never get out of a pig pen until you realize you're in a pig pen and you're the reason you were there. Now that kind of remorse is painful. It's, it's humbling. It's almost crippling. But nobody ever got out of a pig pen by, without realizing that they're in a pig pen to begin with. So if you're in a mess, if you're in any kind of a mess, if you've, your life has ended up in a place that you never dreamed it would, first thing to do is, is to recognize the mess. It's, so don't try to explain it away. Don't try to justify it or rationalize it. Don't blame it on your parents. Don't blame it on your culture. Don't blame it on circumstances. Don't say, well, you know, we're all human. That doesn't help. To quote Jeremiah 3.13, acknowledge your guilt. Say, I'm in a mess and I'm the reason that I'm in a mess. The prodigal son recognized the gravity of his situation. Second, he recognized who he was and where he belonged. He, he knew he, he was not created for a pig pen. He knew his place was back home. He knew he was his father's son. And you are not created for the pig pen either. Let me give you a few examples. You are not created for an abusive relationship. The social workers tell us that during the pandemic, domestic abuse has skyrocketed. You are not created for an abusive relationship. In the eyes of your creator, you are a prince or a princess. And you don't have to stay in an abusive relationship. God did, did not intend you to be used by people. And I'm speaking mainly to young ladies now. God did not intend for you to be used. You are a princess in his eyes. That's not, that's not what you were created for. You were not created for the blind pursuit of pleasure. You were created for meaning and purpose to make a difference in the world, not just to have a good time, whatever the cost. You were created, you were not, you were not created to wallow around in shame and disgrace. You were not created to wallow around in shame and disgrace. This week, for what we call TV or Tennessee Valley Church, we taped the message about this, the prodigal son uh, up in southern Tennessee at a, at a pig farm, and they couldn't, have been, they couldn't have been nicer. But there, they had, you know, of course, somewhere in the barn, and then there, were, there, was a, there was a place outside where the pigs were not wallowing, but wallering. You know the difference between wallow and waller? They were wallering. Uh, you, know how, you know what it's like. I think... So many people waller in shame and disgrace. We just heap shame upon ourselves. We, we beat ourselves up. You were not created to waller in shame and disgrace. You are a prince. You are a princess. You are a son. You are a daughter of the king of the universe. You were not created for a pig pen. The, he, he recognized the gravity of his situation and then he recognized who he was. He was a son of the father and he knew where he belonged. But now he faced a big decision. What would he do? Where could he go? He must have thought, I can't go home. Not after I've disgraced my father. Not after I've angered my father. Not, not after I've made him look bad in front of the rest of the family, not after I've shamed him in front of the neighbors. 
I can't go to my father. In 1998, I cut a, an article out of a newspaper. A man named James Potsolos lived in Corum, New York. He was in trouble with the police. The police knocked on his front door. James Potsolos ran out the back door. And with police chasing him, he hid in a drain pipe, an underground drain pipe. Well, it was a good hiding place, but he got stuck. And there was water, and he got scared and afraid. He became afraid he was going to drown, but he couldn't call out because the police were right out. They knew they were looking for him in the, in the area. So the people who were after him were his only hope for rescue. He, had, he was, he was uh, in a conundrum, was he not? But he finally realized that he had to call for help, so he did. He cried out, I'm stuck. The police heard him, went down through a manhole, rescued him. Don't you imagine the prodigal son felt like that? My only hope is the one to whom I cannot go. But he finally did. And I don't want you to be afraid or ashamed or hesitant to go to the Father. He is not the kind who holds grudges. He is not the kind who would ever reject you if you come home. Your only hope is one whom you may have disappointed, but who never has written you off. The son came to himself, the Bible says. He came to his senses, but that was not the pivotal moment. He recognized the gravity of his situation. He recognized who he was and where he belonged. He came to himself, but that was not the change. That was not the moment of transformation. The moment of transformation was when the Bible says he got up. He made a conscious choice. He got up and went to the Father. One day Landon will inherit a library from me. I inherited a, a library from my father-in-law, who was a minister. And he, was a, he read a lot of Roy Angel books. Roy Angel was a famous Baptist pastor in the mid-1900s. Roy Angel wrote that when in 1910, he was a student at the University of Richmond, and his uncle, Baker Boatwright, invited young Roy Angel, a ministerial student, to go out and preach one Sunday night at his country church. So Roy Angel went out there with his uncle Baker, and he preached on the prodigal son. And he talked about that phrase that the young son came to himself. And he said, that's repentance. That's when change happened. That's when, that's when he repented. And he made a big deal of that. And on the way home in a buggy, Roy Angel said to his uncle, what did you think of the sermon? His uncle Baker said, you did a really fine job, young man, but you missed the point about repentance. He said, repentance is not when you come to yourself. Repentance is when you get up and go home. He said, you can preach to a hundred people and all hundred of them might feel sorry for the situation they're in. They might even cry, but nothing will change until they decide to get up and go home. The turning point for an alcoholic or someone who's addicted to drugs is not the proverbial bottom. The turning point is when they decide to go to meetings, AA meetings. The turning point is when they decide to get treatment. The turning point is not remorse. The turning point is when we decide to do something about it. So today, if you've ended up at a place in life you never thought you would, sorrow is not enough. 
Regret is not enough. You've got to decide to get up and go home. On his way home, he rehearsed a speech. How will I begin, he must have thought. Dear dad, no, that's not good. Daddy, I don't know if I can call him daddy. Father, he rehearsed his speech all the way home, but of course, you know, he didn't, he didn't have to give that speech. Even before he got to that house, he had stormed out of sometime before, even before he got there, his father ran. Remember, he ran. He ran and he fell on his son and he kissed him. And if there's, if there's any moment in all the Bible where we get a snapshot of the nature of God, it's that kiss. You know, you can... We wonder about some of the stories in the Old Testament, the violence, the wars. But if you want a snapshot of God, look at that kiss. Think about that kiss. What kind of kiss must that have been? It must have been a prickly kiss. That prodigal son probably hadn't shaved in a long time. It must have been a sweaty kiss, a salty kiss. Between the sweat of the prodigal son and the salty tears of the father, it must have been a salty kiss. And it must have been a smelly kiss. Wednesday after we got home from the pig farm, I took off my clothes Thursday morning. I could still smell my undershirt. It must have been a smelly kiss. Prickly and salty and smelly. But if you want to know God, just, just see the Father kissing His Son. There was no, how could you? There was no, what were you thinking? Just a kiss and a party. The father put expensive new clothes on his son, put a ring on his finger that signified sonship, hired a 1970s band, and they had a big party, which the elder brother resented. And we'll talk about that next week. But he had a party because he said, my son was, was gone and he's home. He was lost and now he's, now he's found. When I was um, in my first church, there was a family across the road, um, lived in a, it was a mom and two daughters, lived in a, uh, in a mobile home. It was a dysfunctional family. I actually once told you, I, I was talking about abuse and I talked about the live-in boyfriend who abused the mom and it, it was a dysfunctional, it was a, it was a bad situation. Carrie and I were always concerned about those two little girls. There was one night when I went over and got them and slept with a baseball bat by the bed and Carrie got lice and that's a whole nother story. But one Sunday afternoon, they were sitting around under the shade, in the, uh, in the shade of trees the mom and the little girls were playing. The mom was there. The, the living boyfriend was sitting there. An uncle, I came to find out, was there. And um, <clears throat> I walked over just to be a good neighbor. I'd invited them to church before. This Sunday, I don't think I even invited them to church. I think I just went over and greeted them. We talked for a little while. And, and I turned to, to go away. And um, the living boyfriend said... Preacher, I know I should be at that church over there. And he pointed across the street, the highway, to that little brick church. 
He said, I know I need to be in that church over there. But I'd have to crawl to the altar 14 times to get forgiveness for what I've done. And I just turned and instinctively said, uh, no, it will only take once. I don't know where he got the number 14, but he thought, I've got to go grovel. I've got to crawl, he said. I'd have to crawl to that altar 14 times. I think some people who've wandered a, a long way from God think you've got to grovel to come back, that you've got to beat yourself up, that you've got to let other people beat you, beat you up. And that's not true. The father did not make the son grovel. He ran to him and kissed him, didn't even wait for him to get home. Now, this is important. He didn't go get him. He didn't send people to go get him, which he could have. He waited because the son had to make the decision. But once the son came to himself and decided, I'm going home, then the father ran to meet him. He didn't demand that he grovel or beg or plead. He just wanted, he was just waiting for his son to come home. What would it mean for you to come home? Somebody, maybe you've been away from church in a long, for a long time. Maybe a church hurt you. The Lord of the church is perfect. The people of the church are not. You may have been disappointed in a church. Maybe you're watching this for the first time in a long time. Maybe you're just thinking about it. You belong in a church, as imperfect as churches are. Some of you may never have come to know Jesus and you're thinking, how can I go home when I've never been there? Because in the very beginning of time, Adam and Eve, we're in a close relationship with God, which was ruptured by their disobedience. And so now we've all been born with an overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing, a sin nature. We are sinful by, by choice and by nature. And so we were created for relationship with God. You can come to where you always were intended to be. If you've ended up in a place you never thought you'd be in, then on behalf of your father, I invite you. From the one who offers the invitation softly and tenderly, I invite you to come home. 474 is our hymn. I'm going to wait down here for you. If you want to be part of our church, we'd be thrilled. If you want to talk about what it means to come home and take the afternoon, we can do that. But we wait for you while others sing we wait for you, 474. Let's stand, please.